Hello, and welcome to New Books in Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman, and on this episode, I'll be talking with Joe Carducci, author of Enter Naomi, SST, LA, and All That, a book released in 2007 on Joe's own Readout Press. Joe is the author of a few other books, including Rock and the Pop Narcotic, the most recent edition being from 2005, and Wyoming Stories, published in 2008. He also has two books forthcoming. Life Against Dementia is due out this year, and Stone Mail will be published in 2012. All of these books are, or will be, available from Readout Press. Most importantly, for purposes of this interview and the book Enter Naomi, Joe was part owner and office manager of SST Records from 1981 through 1986. SST was a seminal independent record label based in Los Angeles from 1978 throughout the 1980s. They released records by Black Flag, Minutemen, Meat Puppets, St. Vitus, Saccharin Trust, Husker Du, Sonic Youth, and Bad Brains, just to name a few. Enter Naomi revolves around Naomi Peterson, the staff photographer for SST through most of the 80s. Naomi makes her appearance into SST Records in 1981, just after Joe enters the scene. She enters after having a particularly rough night that includes a liaison with SST staffer Mugger, some tough love from her father, and cutting her own wrists. Not knowing where to go, she calls SST in the middle of the night where Chuck, another SST staffer, answers the phone and invites her to stay the night at SST headquarters. Soon after, when it becomes known that Naomi takes pictures, she's invited to become the label's photographer. And she takes photos with gusto, shooting promo shots, stills, album covers, live footage of virtually every SST band and musician in the 1980s. Naomi Peterson died in 2003 due to complications associated with a lifetime of alcoholism. Joe Carducci found out about her death two years later while at a screening of We Jam Kano, a documentary of the Minutemen. Enter Naomi is Joe's recounting of the years between when Naomi entered SST Records and her death. Along the way, he tells us about his role at SST, Naomi's role there, the inner workings of the label, including discussions about many of the central as well as peripheral characters that made the label go, and L.A. punk rock world of the 1980s. Joe also provides insight into the passions that drove SST staffers to do what they did for little to no financial compensation, as well as a glimpse into the gender dynamics that existed within L.A.'s punk scene. Joe lives in Centennial, Wyoming, which is where I reached him for this interview. Well, uh, hello, Joe, and welcome to New Books in Popular Music. Hi, man. So tell us, Joe, uh, could you please, you have an interesting uh, story on, on your impetus for writing Enter Naomi in the first place. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I mean, um, I didn't uh, think of it. I wasn't thinking of writing, uh, you know, a, uh, a memoir or anything about SST. I, you know, as I was leaving the record business, I wrote uh, my first book, Rock and the Pop Narcotic, just because things were still trapped underground and not that some of the underground didn't like, uh, you know, to stay underground. But, I mean, I grew up hearing, you know, great music on AM radio, and so my intention was always how how can you break through and... um and so we never succeeded at what what I and what I know Greg Ginn and Chuck Dukowski intended, which was 
you know, not to uh, develop uh, a little indie market, uh, you know, with a cool to go with it or a lifestyle or something. Um, it was, you know, a, a much more ambitious uh, attempt, uh, you know, to to <laughs> to put the new Jimi Hendrixes on the radio, like the old Jimi Hendrix was on the radio, and. Um, so, but you know, out of the blue, uh, I heard not only that uh, our uh, photographer Naomi Peterson had died, but that it, it, it had been two years since she died. And I'm still in touch with you know a, a fair number of the SST musicians and people I worked with, and so that was kind of shocking. And um, and um, uh, the musicians back then made no money but um i guess i guess in the back of my mind the you know the 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 way the girls lived in los angeles in the music scene uh was you know probably not what you would advise say your sister you know, <laughs> to, to to do <laughs> and uh and and so you know there was a sense that um, oh, that uh, wasn't a car accident death. This must have been, you know, something in and of the life of of that era. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and yet I didn't, you know, that there was no connection between her family and and uh, anyone. So I did a people search and and. Um, found the likely address and eventually her brother uh, got in touch with me and you know and as I met him talked to him talked to other people I knew I wanted to write and post an obituary of some sort online um, and, and try to trigger some some magazine maybe like spin or Rolling Stone to do something but um, there's just no way you know there's no way out of <laughs> the ghetto they put us in a long time ago, you know, going back to the Ramones in the late seventies. It's just you're you're not for the grown ups table. So I had to you know, as I found the story, I I I then thought uh that it would be a book and that I could um I could say a lot about her and those girls in that scene. I mean, she was 17 or something when uh, when she first um, um, crossed paths with the Black Flag, uh, and um, you know, had her camera. And, and uh, it, it wasn't Black Flag. I needed photos of. Everyone was taking photos of them, but nobody would take photos of the Minutemen or the Meat Puppets, and you know, or Sacred Trust. I just I just needed someone who would do that for us, and, and that's. So c- tell us briefly um, a little bit of your biography up until you, you reach SST Records. Um, well, I grew up in Naperville, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and uh, um, I wasn't interested in college. I mean, I went uh, for a year and a half. Um, I got interested in movies in high school and um and so I moved to Hollywood in 1976, uh, you know, having started writing screenplays. And um, and uh, I was in Hollywood for a year, and um, 
you know, it's, it's such an alien environment. I mean, uh, to me, it didn't seem, I mean, that's probably the worst uh, air pollution era of Los Angeles was the mid-70s. I mean, it was just dreary. And <laughs> the sun was almost a joke, you know. I, I didn't understand how tourists would be wandering around Hollywood Boulevard, you know, thinking like this was really something they were seeing. Right. So I, I moved to Portland then, and that's where I got into the record business just because, you know, I spent a year submitting uh, scripts or, you know, uh, it just seemed, the movie business seemed unfathomable to me, and, and I wasn't, you know, uh, a good enough writer at that point, like 21. And so I moved to Portland and got involved in independent uh, record distribution, and we were connected to uh, Rough Trade, and uh, we were their, uh, their outlet into the American market, and we were doing that for American independence as well. This is um, systematic record distribution. Is that who it is? Yeah, we, we didn't. It was just, it developed out of a record store up there called Renaissance in 78, 79. And then we moved to Berkeley and changed the name to systematic at the, at the very okay. beginning of 80. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow you end up moving back to Los Angeles. Yeah, I was I was in Berkeley for a couple of years, and and the distributor, you know, um, put out uh, Dead Kennedy singles and a few other things, but there were no pressing plants in San Francisco, and the bands didn't seem. I mean, I wasn't planning on staying in the record business because <clears throat> bands were not making it, and they and they weren't doing much about it either. I mean, the Dead Kennedys had done a little bit of touring and and got a you know a record released out of London, but that just sort of screwed them up further because you know their record was two or three dollars more mm-hmm. than any American band's record in a record store, and 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 there was no tour support you know for a, an import record. Uh, not that there was ever any tour support, you know, but. You know, then I met Black Flag, and they were doing something uh, completely different. And um, you were in in uh, Berkeley. Berkeley when you met them. Yeah, um, they had got up to Portland just as we were leaving. So I I, I remember blown off the gig because we were getting up at four in the morning. To, oh, so literally just as you were leaving. Yeah, so I just missed them. I I had written for their single, and that got rerouted by the post office down to. Uh, down to Berkeley, mm-hmm. and um, that was the nervous breakdown, 45. Right. And but I then I saw them a couple times because they they were playing up and down the West Coast at that point, um, and um, into '81, and uh, basically they just had the nervous breakdown and the jealous again records out, and then the Minutemen seven inch, the first one. And um, the Minutemen put out a couple of compilation albums, so I was. Aware that there was, you know, something down there. I was mostly interested in LA in terms of music because of the Danger House label and Slash Magazine. Mm-hmm. I think those were, um, you know, those were uh, so much. That Danger House was they were they were the best label as far as they put out a run of seven inch records. And, so, um, uh, what are some of the bands they re- they released? Well, they did X and they did um, uh, the Bags 
and mm-hmm. uh, Rhino 39, um, uh, Black Randy. It was, you know, the, basically the scene down there in Hollywood. Although, mm-hmm. you know, Rhino 39 were a beach band. I think they were Huntington Beach and, uh, they were an early, an early band more from the, from that area, OC and South Bay. And, uh, but, you know, I, I met, uh, Black Flag. I saw how good they were and, and, uh, and I saw that they were touring and they were just, um, they were doing it. <laughs> and, right. uh, they had some people with them like Spot and Mugger who were, uh, who were uh, willing? I mean, Greg was. Um, you know, when you met Greg, you uh, you were inclined to. Uh, I mean, Black Randy was about this most cynical guy you could imagine. I mean, you know, his, his records are really foul mouthed and uh, right diabolical. Uh, but you know, he was one of the owners of Danger House, <laughs> and even he was saying, you know, it's in the Brendan Mullen book, uh, the Neutron Bomb. He, he calls. He said that everyone had a missionary um, drive, and, uh, and that's, that's a very good word for it because, you know, we were, we were so, you know, in a way, we were 10 years after we'd all probably really been in love with music as kids, you know, listening to whatever, the Rolling Stones and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, what what was going on. You are all in your your mid to late twenties by now. Um. Yeah. I mean, Greg, Chuck, Spot, and myself were Mike Watt, Pettibone. We we were about the same age. Um. So we were in our, uh, I would say, mid late twenties when I get back down to SST. And uh, Mugger and Henry and Naomi, they're still teenagers or or twenty, you know. Right. So there was like two. Two age groups, I would say, uh, in and around SST. So, so can you tell me then a little of uh, Naomi's biography leading up to SST Records? Well, and, and again, I didn't know any of this at the time. I mean, she she came into SST, um, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, having cut her wrists, and uh, and then called. Uh, uh, SST. <laughs> I don't know why a girl would do that, but, uh, she knew Black Flag and, you know, and Chuck answered the phone and, and t- told her to come in and, and we just, we all lived in a one room office basically, uh, which had a bathroom and, and, um, and so I met her the next, <laughs> the next day, um, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, and, um, and Chuck was thinking, this girl needs some help, and uh, Joe's been complaining about photographs, mm-hmm. and uh, she has a camera, and she she um her her um her, you know it's it's a complicated story as far as you know how the parents met. I mean, uh, her father was um, a Mormon artist who was serving in the military in Japan and her mother was a, uh, um, uh, unbeknownst to her was, um, not the daughter of a Buddhist priest, but a niece who'd been placed with them as a child by poor rural parents. And that somehow that, <laughs> that, um, 
that led her to um, say yes to a, a GI, uh, even though they really didn't speak the other's language And um, at the time. And they came and moved to uh, Utah. They got married in Japan and moved to Utah, got married again, then they moved to L.A. so that they were around some people um, Naomi's mom could speak Japanese to. And, uh, and so she grew up in Los Angeles, and um, she had an older brother, and um, he described himself as kind of a, a good a good son who didn't, you know, push against the rules. And Naomi was the opposite. You know, she she uh, was a very very positive personality, but um, you know, I I can see that she. Uh, you know, in Los Angeles, at first she was trying to uh, work with Simi Valley kids from her high school and do who were doing a band or doing a fanzine, and they weren't really doing anything. You know, they were just talking about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so once she was 16, she got a car and started. You know, in L.A., you could you could hear. Unlike the rest of the country, you could hear the Ramones on the radio and the Damned and all this stuff. Uh, Black Flag, even the you know Rodney uh, Bingenheimer on uh, K Rock, and 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 during the rest of the week, K Rock was a good station. And um, this is the late seventies and right. eighty one, and so you know she heard these ads for Black Flag gigs. They always bought their own ads and did their own you know, promotions and, uh, and, um, none of the other punk bands did that in LA and, or anywhere else. I mean, I used to, you know, I used to tell Greg and Chuck that I thought, uh, they couldn't have happened in any other city. And, uh, you know, they thought they, they were the same people and they would have been the same people and they didn't agree. <laughs> but, you know, I'd been, I grew up in Chicago and I, I, I knew, how retarded it was musically in terms of, you know, there were some people trying to do punk rock, but, you know, when Black Flag came through all those towns around the country, I mean, people couldn't believe what they were doing, how they were living. <laughs> right. And, uh, but anyway, and for Naomi, um, you know, she was, um, kind of uh, advanced in terms of art because of her father and um, and uh, she's half Japanese and um, half uh, I think the rest is Dutch and um, um, Norwegian I think um, but you know Simi Valley I looked at the yearbook that she's in she, she quit high school probably in the third year and um, um, it wasn't all white or anything, so I don't quite, you know, I, I wasn't, you mentioned uh, John Savage's, uh, you know, tapes of all his interviews. Um, you know, for, for my world, if you put a tape recorder in front of people, <laughs> they're just not going to talk. So right. I, only, I only spoke with people or emailed them and... Um, you know, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I did, I'm not a professional uh, uh, writer in that sense. You know, I, I write screenplays or I, I mm-hmm. write about art. You know, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a, I'm not a reporter. So, so, so 
How about telling us a little bit about the the history of of SST Records, even maybe a little bit uh, before you got there, and then. Uh... Well, I, they didn't. Greg didn't intend to run a record label, but he had already, um, you know, run a, an electronics company, which he called SST um, Electronics, and um, and uh, he was into ham radio. And he was, you know, a genius, and he had invented things in his early teens. You know, he ran a fanzine about ham radio when he was 12 or 13, and he started inventing electronic um, reception boosters and stuff like that. And uh, and he was putting these things together and selling them. Um, and you can, you know, see some of the equipment and it's got the same old SST logo that was designed for the electronics uh, stuff. Yeah, I, I I read an interview with him recently or saw it on YouTube where I guess people still come up to him with these old components and ask him to sign them. <laughs> it's hilarious because, you know, at the, you wouldn't think there's any crossover at all. But Black Flag became this sort of secret, um, you know, after they stopped being a band they just became kind of like the gold standard for the real shit. And, mm -hmm. um, and because it's word of mouth, um, it, 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 it's bulletproof, you know, I think. Kids hear it in their teens, and it's not like anything else they've heard, you know. Still. You know, yeah, it's, it's, um, um, but of course, you know, I mean, some, some of the, uh, the best writing I've, <laughs> I've, I've read about, uh, about, you know, the, the band's music, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember who, who did it, but they, 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 they were guessing at the connection between ham radio static and <laughs> distortion. Because, of course, he rebuilt his guitars. He took the worst guitar, yeah, I think it's the Dan Electro, uh, you know, I don't know guitars, I could be wrong, there's a couple of Dan-type guitars. But, um, you know, it was not a, not considered a usable instrument <laughs> right. because of the tone. But he, you know, he replaced the, uh, the pickups and, and did something and really, really liked it. You know, I, I don't know, I guess later he... Today he might be playing a different guitar, but through those years it was always that one uh, loose head body that he had. So you're telling me about the history of SST Records, and uh... yeah. So Greg, uh, as I understand it, he uh, paid no attention to music. His younger brother uh, Raymond uh, did. That probably uh, Raymond was. Um, you know, uh, also a genius. <laughs> that's all you can say about him. Uh, and that's, that's Pettibone, right? Yeah. And I knew their family. I mean, there were five kids and, uh, and, you know, the mother was from Estonia and, um, met the father in London during World War II. And, um, and, um, uh, Mr. Ginn was Irish, uh, and, uh, Mrs. Ginn told me he had tested uh, in the Air Force at an IQ of 175, and um, 
and uh you know the kids are all different but you know just very high quality people and uh Raymond probably as a young teenager was really into radio and music and sports and comics and you know e- everything and and then literature and you know high art and he just you know he's just uh, gone supernova basically i mean when i see him now he's he's just completely uh you know uh um you know, um, <laughs> his his interface with the universe is total. <laughs> I guess is how you put it. But uh, he he this uh, was a very quiet person, um, and in a sense, I guess that Greg at some point turned on the music. They were reading about the Ramones and CBGBs. You know, Patti Smith was even a little ahead of that. You know, so this is the mid seventies. They're reading the Village Voice, and then they're ready to go see the Ramones and television and these bands when they start showing up in L.A. in seventy six and seventy seven. And um, and Greg just turned on to it um, and uh, um, started writing songs um, without a band or anything, and. Um, and that's in '76, and um, and then the band comes together um, with Keith Morris and and playing drums at first, and uh, I think Raymond was um, just um, playing bass uh, in in a kind of an arrangement. You know, they were learning how do you do this? How do you put two instruments together? Uh, Raymond doesn't claim he was ever in the band, but he's you know definitely involved in the uh, origins of it all. And Spot was a music writer for the Free Weekly in Hermosa Beach, and um, and so Greg began to talk to Spot about music uh, regularly, and that was how that connection got made. And um, and then they needed a practice place, and they shared a derelict bathhouse with um, Bukowski, who had his own band called Worm. Uh, and WURM, and, uh, and they go back into the early 70s. He's more of a, you know, uh, he had been into hard rock. And that was the other thing about Los Angeles is a lot of those kids, the Red Cross and the Descendants, they they went to arena shows uh, all through the 70s, Mike Watt and Dee Boone. <laughs> right. And this is a time when, you know, I, I say in the book, you, you'd go to the Long Beach Sports Arena well, you would see, you might see Gentle Giant and ZZ Top uh, and uh, Uriah Heep. Or you might mm-hmm. see Moxie and King Crimson and, you know, just ridiculous. It was at a very high level of music. Um, some of it was blues rock, some of it was prog rock, some of it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, dumb, dumb hard rock, you know, and some of it... Uh, you know, and and um, everybody was smoking pot, I guess, or you know, it was the place you could smoke pot and get drunk, and um, and uh, um, but that economy sort of, I don't know, it kind of that was ending, and it was becoming for kids, whereas it had been part of the uh, you know the late '60s hippie thing. Right now, I guess older older music fans could smoke pot, you know, in their apartment or something, and. Uh, um, you know, they just stopped going to gigs. And, and so in a way, it got to be, for younger 
males mostly. Mm-hmm. And, and that was this before heavy metal, and then it kind of, kind of became heavy metal. And those, so those guys were always connected to hard rock in a way that, you know, the typical uh, punk rock uh, was not, later on especially. Mm-hmm. What was... Because Greg and Chuck were older, and, and, uh, and some of the younger kids were, um, you know, connected to them and, and uh, doing that. And it seems in some of the other writing um, on the on the L.A. punk scene, like you know Brendan Mullins and Michael Azarod's, they talk about this this early uh, Hollywood punk scene around the mask, and you have the Germs and the Weirdos and X, and then they insert Black Flag and SST, and they seem to be suggest that there's a, a, a something changes it becomes more violent is one of the main things they say and it becomes younger um, yeah well it, it um what la was you know it was it, it was a, a huge place and it, and the people in hollywood did not um take advantage of that they um you know they were a, kind of a classic um demimond they were dropping out and they didn't, you know, um, they didn't have the uh, interest in suburban kids. So why would they go to Downey to play or, you know, to uh, Huntington Beach? Um, the only band that really did was the Germs. They they played the Fleetwood in Redondo Beach um, several times. And those were, uh, those were the first gigs where you had uh, the South, you know, the South Suburban Los Angeles area seeing an L.A. punk band at a known rock venue, you know, Mm -hmm. and Patti Smith had played there, you know, she wrote a song called Redondo Beach and and for the second album, I think, and, and, you know, it's from their tour and they played Fleetwood because you could, uh, it's hard to play anywhere else. You know, they typically would play the whiskey up in uh, up in uh, up in uh, Hollywood, and and you know most bands would just call that it for L.A. But you know, you're asking people to drive an hour and a half to see you if that's the only place you play in L.A. So if you're down in Hermosa Beach, like Black Flag, well, I mean, you know, that's what I mean. That they were, I was going to stay in their music business. Uh, for another few years, uh, I wasn't going to work with the Dead Kennedys, um, even though I liked those guys. Uh, they were good. They were not, um, they were just going to sit around, <laughs> mostly. And, uh, you know, they wrote songs and they recorded them, but, um, it wouldn't be worth my time. And, uh, and, and with Black Flag, you knew something was going to happen. <laughs> so, you, you know, and and I was enough of a political radical that I I definitely wanted to see what was possible, and then I also you know was learning something about how you how how art can have an impact, and thinking that would apply later to you know my own writing at some point. At the same time, um, as you've already mentioned once, and I I read it, and, and again one of one of maybe one of the Brendan Mullen books. Um, you guys didn't necessarily 
you had aspirations. I mean, Black Flag thought maybe they could get some of their songs on the radio. Yeah. You weren't well, necessarily... Go yeah. ahead. The, at first, the, the Nervous Breakdown 7-inch, which has four songs on it, um, you know, they recorded that uh, in, in uh, Hamosa Beach with Spot, I think was the second engineer at that point. And, and uh, they sent it up and Bomp Records said they would release it. They had released the weirdos and and um, uh, um, uh, some other stuff. Um, at, at that point, the last 45, they were also from Hermosa, and they sat on it for seven, six, seven months, and then they decide they really got into power pop. <laughs> so they uh, they heard about the shoes from from Chicago and and put them together with the last in 2020 and uh, a couple other bands uh and 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 so they they just lost interest in punk rock and and so greg thought well we'll just um we'll just use he's still doing the electronics company and uh and so he just used all of that the banking account the name the logo and released nervous breakdown himself and you know it sold a thousand records very quickly, and and they put a, a second run out, and um, and uh, me, I was still up at at Systematic. I couldn't get my hands on any of those copies. They all sold in L.A., and so I didn't get the Nervous Breakdown single until it was in its third thousand. And at that point, that's when the record begins to, because Systematic was pretty much it as far as uh, how was anyone out around the country, you know, going to buy a, a, a L.A. punk rock record. Uh, it went through Systematic, and, and so um, they were doing, they were, they, there was a buzz about them because of how they played and people who saw them in L.A. And then, you know, on one of their uh, might have been their second gig. They they second gig. Uh, they saw the Minutemen. Uh, actually, they were the reactionaries still, I think, and um, uh, and the Descendants were on that too. But they, uh, but Greg, uh, uh, you know, wanted to record the Minutemen and do a second seven-inch record. And so I don't know if they really, he, you know, he thought of the label as. Um, Kind of a uh, last option. If if no one else wanted to do your record and you were good, he would do it. Um, I came down from Systematic, and uh, I probably introduced uh, the impulse to to do it as a full service label, which. Um, they were moderately resistant to, uh, because they, they didn't want uh, the Meat Puppets or the Husker Du or, you know, some of the bands to, um, uh, to count on too much. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and they didn't really. I mean, they were, Black Flag by then, by then had a, you know, a, a huge reputation in that Azarad book. Um, I think Gibby from the Butthole Surfer says that the the whole idea was to be as cool as Black Flag, because they just blew into town, you know, did these um, uh, astonishing uh, gigs, you know, and and were gone, 
and uh, um, and 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 uh, then the second time they came through, there was you know it just it was the it was the most amazing thing anyone had seen because you know even even if you had gone to see the Ramones or you'd gone to see whoever was touring on a more showbiz level, um, you know you were looking up from a distance to see the Ramones typically. Right. Black Flag were often on the floor <laughs> playing, you know, di- you know, directly at you and um and and they were walking around beforehand. I mean, they just you know, they were playing places there was no backstage, there's no nothing. So it was so accessible, it just inspired people on a on a whole other scale. You know, the Ramones basically inspired people by their record. When that first record came out, people who were kind of, you know, they might have been into Jonathan Richmond or you know, or the Stooges or you know something, and were looking for that kind of a of a knowing band, you know, that would reference so much of the good '60s garage rock, you know, that's sort of what the sensibility was, and um, and and Black Flag was a deeper, more direct phenomenon than that. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, what about, uh, uh, talk about Naomi just a little bit. What uh, about her photography? Can you can you tell us some of the qualities of her, of her photography that strike you, some, some important uh, features of it? Well, I, I think what what you can tell is, is that she was um, of the scene. And so there's, there's uh, no put on from the musicians, you know, um, uh, Mike Watt always used to, uh, kind of laugh and say, you know, this is later in the period, uh, they went, they went on the tour with REM at some point, but in that period, you know, you'd always be seeing REM photos everywhere in the, in the mid and late eighties. And, uh, he, he laughed that there was, you know, that someone always has a prop. In a, a REM photo, and um, who knows why? I mean, but, you know, they're putting on something, right? And in 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 our case, it was like showbiz with zero glamour, <laughs> and uh, and so the girls who were around were, um, you know, were. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I mean, that's part of why I was interested in trying to figure it out is why were they there? You know, I mean, there was, um, animal sex appeal, but it wasn't dressed up. Uh, the music, musicians didn't dress up. I mean, up in, up in, uh, you know, the dead Kennedy scene and what came out of the dead Kennedy scene was a very political punk rock movement. And, you know, it included leather jackets. It included, uh, graffiti shirts and, you know, Stuff like that, but in in L.A. and in the South Beach, in particular, um, it was it was beachwear, you know, and um, and um, kids sort of lived outdoors in Los Angeles, and so they often had a real practical thing uh, about. But it was it was and it had glamour and sex appeal, but it was a it was a, a thrown off casual thing 
which in you know in a subtle way made it more dramatic to, to you know people around the country. So you see this translating into Naomi's photos. Yeah, and, and you look at the photos, and and um, um, she was not uh, a um, she was not concerned about her reputation as a photographer. So you know, other photographers might get pissed off if fans were, you know, making them look dumb by asking them to do this or to do that, and you know, so there's some dumb-looking shots that she took because the fans wanted to be on a playground equipment or you know they wanted to do this or that, and she would always do that. She wasn't uh, pretentious in that sense, um, but the the um. You know, people people wrote about it, uh, and I quoted some of the emails I got after I posted the obituary because the photos they looked at in fanzines were printed mostly on terrible paper and fairly small, and so you know her photos didn't didn't get printed. Uh, you know, commensurate, you know, in, in conditions commensurate with their musical importance, <laughs> put it that way. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it was just part of this dashed off culture that was very young. It had a, it had impatience and, um, I don't know what it communicated, impatience and, um, and a kind of, uh, you know, we know what we're doing, and and if you're not into it, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, and, uh, you know, not all the bands were like that exactly, but they got comfortable with her. And so, you know, there's just that thing in her photography. And this is primarily I'm talking from 82 to the point at which she moves to D.C. in 88. I think technically her her work is the best in stuff I've seen in 86 and 87, where it seems like maybe the bands are playing in clubs that have a little bit better lighting, and so her options are a little a little better, and, and you know, some real nice prints of the Meat Puppets and uh, Red Cross in, in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, you've already spoke to this just a little bit, but maybe you can expand on it because I think it's an important part of the book um, where you emphasize uh, you know, gender and, and gender relations, not just at SST, but maybe in the, the L.A. punk scene. Do, do you want to talk a little more about that, please? Sure. Um, <clears throat> um, you said it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, a, a boys, man's you know, music scene. Well, yeah, it um the uh, you know, a key figure when you're talking about the the uh the uh the sex aspect of the scene was mother and he was um uh you know, he was 17 when I got down there and uh, cuz I remember we were in West Hollywood first and uh, about six months later, we moved back down to Redondo Beach, and and somewhere down in Redondo Beach in '82, I think he uh, he turned 18, and he he was uh, bemoaning the fact that he could uh, he could now be uh, uh, arrested uh, for statutory rape, 
and um, because he he uh, <laughs> he got laid <laughs> a lot, and uh, they were young girls. And uh, what can you say about Los Angeles? I mean, some something played out in Los Angeles that didn't really play out the same in the rest of the country, and it had to do with um, again people live outdoors, so they mix. Uh, young kids mix outside of school, and the pill was. Well, you know, I, don't, I don't know. There's a lot of divorce in Los Angeles. A lot of, a lot of trends were, you know, incubated in Los Angeles as this giant uh, experiment. And um, and um, so you know, it was just that was that was. Mugger had this ability to break down. He, you know, it's like he knew what uh, the girl was interested in, uh, despite the common defenses of, you know, uh, uh, pro forma shyness. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he was shameless at it, you know. And, and actually, he schooled the older guys in how to get laid <laughs> because, you know, just intellectuals have to learn their way to something that he, who lived on the street, I mean, he had run away from home maybe at 15 or something. And, um, um, uh, but, you know, that was, a, that was what was great about L.A. It was so unusual. Mugger had a band when he was, you know, just 14 or 15, and he's, he's playing in a band with two black kids. And the black kids' parents were, you know, bourgeois, Folks, you know, doctor, doctor's son, and somebody else, and and he was telling me this, that, you know, that that those uh, black parents did not want mother to come over, <laughs> even though he's probably, you know, he's a white guy, but he's probably part Mexican or something, and you know, so you just hear these strange reversals of anything you can imagine in in Los Angeles because uh, this overwhelming. Uh, in a way, it's the old ideal, the post-war ideal of moving to California. Uh, and then L.A. is just, it is a it is a major city. It's not like San Diego where, you know, you, maybe they kept that ideal going of a couple decades later. But, you know, they all moved to L.A. and got a divorce and their kids hate them and, you know, are living, uh, growing up on the street and you know, all this stuff starts happening and it and a thing like punk rock in on the east coast and in chicago sort of had this mandate to to that had something to do with turf gangs of the east coast tribal city and then to break out of the neighborhood aspect of it it just migrated into the punk style became the turf and that was there was nothing like that in Los Angeles. So um, uh, you write that uh, I'm trying to stay on the gender thing just a little bit. Uh, Naomi traded on sex appeal. How how was she treated uh, at SST Records by the by the men? Well, I mean, she was at first treated like all the girls who were around, uh, you know. And and again, this is Mugger's insight. That what they wanted was sex, and it's a little different because when a band is touring, 
they're at a huge advantage because the local girls know they're going to leave town and they're not going to run into them at the laundromat or the you know the market or you know around town again and be mortified you know because they made a big mistake um but in LA, it was a little, a little odder because Black Flag would play up in Simi Valley and they'd play in the valley and they'd play in the desert and they'd, you know, um, they toured LA almost continually, even when they weren't touring. And no other bands, I mean, some of the later punk bands adapted into that and, and, you know, played around town like that. But they were, um, in a way, approachable stars, and they were nice guys. I mean, they were they were uh, fairly. Um, I don't know what uh, you know. Every terms about sex are loaded, of course, but uh, they they were um, you know they were the kind of guys that Naomi thought would help her when her father wouldn't let her back in the house that night. Mm-hmm. She was, you know, it was three or four in the morning and she went to them and, um, and, um, you know, it was, I don't know. I mean, she, she had girlfriends occasionally, but she was, uh, you know, uh, an outsider in, 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 I think, uh, female, uh, society, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I read a little bit about that to write the book, and the one book I, I, um, I read was a, um, um, the subtitle of it is, uh, I think, The Myth of the Slut, or something like that. Right. I forget the title of it. It's in, you can find it in the book. But, um, the woman isolated five elements. One, and this led to being considered a slut by other girls in a high school. All right. Uh, and they were um, maturing physically early ahead of, you know, your cohort, uh, being ethnically exotic in some way. Um, what are the other three? Um, transferring into the school from outside. Um, anyway, Naomi hit the jackpot, you know, full house. Right. And so um, I didn't, I eventually got in touch with a classmate of hers who read the book, but, you know, the book was already done then. But her, her, her brother told me that she was pushed around even by guys, you know, and the way I took it, this is her, she transfers in to the second year of high school and she doesn't finish the third year. Mm. Um, and... I think the girls uh, froze her out because, like I said, I mean, there wasn't a brighter smile on a hot chick you ever saw. You know what I mean? And uh, and um, good-looking girls usually tone it down. You know, they don't walk around with their brights on. <laughs> because, you know, but she was... Um, she was um, just interested in men and uh, interested in... Um, learning things and uh and uh, she went to the art class of course and her, her father was uh um you know interested in her being an artist but he he thought you know he just didn't trust rock and roll that that would 
lead anywhere and you know and 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 you know it, it, nobody thought it was going to lead anywhere we were convinced that you know they were you know the the um the worst of the hippies had taken over radio and rolling stone and the record labels and they were just going to force you to listen to garbage you know for then on right so um joe why did you leave sst well i'm i once we weren't all living in one office uh, together, I uh, started to write again. You know, I was a little bit older, and I had seen, uh, you know, seen a lot of movies in those years, and uh, and and uh, doing some reading about uh, whatever politics and and uh, literature and. And so I, I, um, had some ideas and so I, I wrote, uh, two or three more scripts and I thought I need to try to, you know, make a step from the, the music business into what I really want to do, which is to write screenplays. And, it, uh, I couldn't, you know, there really was no connection. You know, now I think there's, you know, black flag fans and, and, you know, and, in the film business, but there there wasn't any crossover at that point at all, and and there wasn't an independent film scene even, you know, really. So I was just getting into that again, and then Black Flag. It was, you know, we were on the outs basically because again, um, my sense of a record label, you know, if if that's all I was doing there was to make it a real record label, and and um. And I think Greg and Chuck, they wanted to improvise the company uh, in a way that made it hard for you to, say, deliver on some band's fourth album, you know, coherently, promotion-wise and stuff. And uh, and so I knew that Black Flag was uh, ending in 86. And so that, that you know, that... And the and the company was on its feet enough that I could leave with some money. Mm-hmm. If I had left two years earlier, I wouldn't have been able to take any money with me because you know the we had the big uh, court problem with Black Flag and and a uh, distributor label right. that we made a deal with. So that we were, and, and wh- you know, why does Naomi leave uh, uh, SST? Well, it's it's uh, interesting because I didn't I didn't, you know I had to think through all this and try to remember things. I worked with Naomi as a free, she was a freelance photographer and she was on call and we paid for all of her film and paper and developing chemicals and any, anything she needed. Then we gave, we gave her that. We didn't really pay her until probably 85, say, uh, for a you know, per photo on an album cover or that kind of thing. Uh, we didn't use a lot of photos on album covers in the early period. I mean, people were putting art on the albums, but uh, eventually there was photography done for album covers, and so she got some money for that. And um, and and then as I'm leaving, she begins to work at the label. We had two offices by '85, and one was where Black Flag practiced and and did their booking and um and they did more and more promotion again as as you know there's this sort of split between Greg and Chuck 
and Black Flag and me and Mugger at SST where we're dealing with, you know, a dozen bands and trying to schedule out record releases uh for the for the next year and 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 do well by them you know they weren't interested in that really and uh um but anyway now so Naomi's working over there as you know part of their office mm-hmm. and that means uh booking tours you know working the phones plus the photography and um, probably management you know chores and stuff like that and um they were managing bands other than Black Flag out of that office too, as I recall, and booking a bunch of bands. And um, so she was part of that scene come probably the end of 85, and I leave in March 86. So she's working there, and they we were moving the company every mo- every year because we were we didn't have enough room for the records we were uh, pressing and releasing. And, uh, and so after I left, they moved a couple times and wound up down in Long Beach and, um, and she worked there and, uh, just didn't like it. I mean, she was, she was burned out on Greg and Chuck and, um, and, uh, the wheels were maybe falling off the beginning to fall off the company at the end of the eighties. And, um, and she was tired of LA. I mean, she, she had traveled to Germany and, you know, and, uh, I reprinted a bunch of her letters to me and she was, uh, burning to leave town and go to DC and travel also just, you know, Go to, in particular, Germany and in and, and Europe generally. She's very interested in seeing that and, and uh, went back a few times. And so, uh, what are you up to now, Joe? What are you working on? Well, I, I, um, um, I had my, uh, my book, my first book, Rock and the Pop Narcotic, uh, through Henry Rollins' book company. And then he, pull back to just his own titles. And so I had my book back and I had to figure out, do I want to be in the publishing business? You know? And, um, and uh, the answer was no, but you know, uh, I, I thought he can't get, it's not worth it to give it away to somebody. And nobody big was, you know, thought it was worth anything. So I'm in the book business and um, I've got two more books coming after I did the rock book. I began work on a film book because that's my continuing interest and um and I'm just hoping to get that out next year and it's it's in a way it's an analog to the to the rock book and that one's called Stone Mail, right? Yeah, Stone Mail Requiem for a Film Style and it's mm-hmm. basically about how film always had a big part of what they now call actuality. Uh, the earliest films were actualities, just a little five, actually like a 50-second document of a train pulling into a station. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people had never seen that uh, projected on a wall. They'd seen a train, but you know, they hadn't seen a film of a train. And And in terms of acting, Film acting involves a lot of actualities. You know, a a guy 
is a horse wrangler and he can, uh, you know, make the horse fall and do a tumble without killing himself, we'll put him in a movie and uh, give him some lines. Well, he becomes an actor. And uh, (laughs) there's a lot of film acting that is that kind of acting. as There's no stage training whatsoever. And I just thought, well, you know, they keep talking about what is a good actor, and it's Sean Penn or it's Marlon Brando or, you know, someone trained. And and, uh, to me, Ben Johnson is a great actor (laughs) and uh, uh, Richard Farnsworth and, you know, those... You know, neither is alive now, but when you're watching those guys, you're seeing something better than acting. <laughs> and, uh, and I just thought there's a whole, you know, book to, to trace that through the history of film. And so that's what I'm, that's, that's what I'm doing. And uh, for that thing. Okay. And then I'm writing screenplays and I've got a, a book out of Wyoming stories. It's called, and it's got three, of my screenplays that are set in Wyoming where I live. And the first one is in development or, you know, in whatever you call it, uh, with, with a producer. So that looks like it'll get made next year. That's called young girl. And, um, you know, that's been, I mean, I'm 55 and I've been waiting for that for, you know, a long fucking time. (laughs) And why'd you end up in Wyoming? Well, I used to drive between Chicago and L.A. a lot, and this was the most interesting place. I mean, I like St. George, too, but uh, this is the most interesting place as you're driving through that you begin to notice. And in this corner of the state, you're kind of in the in the far orbit of the Denver metropolitan area, so you're connected to a reasonable-sized city, mm-hmm. uh, although Colorado is much dumber than uh, Wyoming. <laughs> It's, you know, it's there. So I, I go down to Boulder to see silent films once in a while at the Chautauqua down there. So, you know, there's some culture down there that you can get. And music plays there, although I don't go down there too often. The Descendants are based in Fort Collins, and they have a oh. studio there. So I'm still, I still have an aura in there somewhat. Did you did you go see Meat Puppets when they were in Wyoming a, a month or last year? No, I, I don't think they played in... In, they played it at Grand Targhee Ski yeah, Resort. That's right. Yeah, that's the other side of the state. Yeah. I was talking it, to their manager and and you know telling them, well, I'll go down to Fort Collins to see them, but I won't go down to Boulder <laughs> and Denver. It's just too it's just too far. But right. um, uh, yeah, I'd like to see them. I hear I hear good things about them and uh, uh, skin your uh, interview with them and uh, and uh, you know those guys they're very smart guys. I'm glad Chris survived. <laughs> well. Um, Thanks a lot, Joe, for the interview. I appreciate you being on our show. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks. I'm glad you're interested, and uh, um, um, glad to hear from you. And I'll I'll be checking the uh, the site for sure. You've been listening to an interview with Joe Carducci, author of Enter Naomi, SST, LA, and all that, published in 2007 on Redoubt Press. Please check the new books and popular music site regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.